I'll open us up with prayer and then we'll get started. Our gracious Lord and God, we thank you for this time to be together, to open up scripture and to read together. And we pray that you would bless our hearts with the truth and help us understand uh, the glorious things that our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished in his great work for our salvation. And we pray that we would understand uh, the stuff we're going to look at this evening and that we would have a good discussion about it. And we just thank you so much for preserving your church through all these centuries and preserving the scriptures for us to read and study. And we pray that you would bless this time together as we learn from your spirit working through your word in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, come on in. We're at the end of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And uh, we're going to back up just a little bit um, and talk about um, the verses leading up to verse 26, which is where we we left off last time. So Galatians 3, and uh, we'll look at verses um, 19 and following there and just make a few comments, and then we'll try to get into some of chapter 4 if we can. So remember, Paul is spelling out the gospel here. Remember, that's really what the whole book of Galatians is about, is the gospel, And there was a serious defection from the gospel that had taken place there in the churches of Galatia. And who can tell me what had happened there? What what were they allowing to be taught there? Yeah, that that you get into heaven by your good works or by circumcision or by keeping the dietary laws or Jesus plus something. And that's why Paul writes this very strongly worded, short, choppy letter to combat that idea. Uh, that you can't add anything to the grace of God and it still be grace. Okay, And always remember, the way that the Lord describes salvation, the way he describes the eternal life, is as a gift. Okay, And if something is paid for by us, is it a gift? If we do something at all to earn it or to contribute to it, then it's, it's not a gift any longer. And uh, that's what uh, the scriptures really from the front to the back explain to us, is that because of our sinful condition... The only way we can be saved is is purely as a gift. God has to unconditionally elect out of the fallen mass of humanity who he's going to show grace to. And then in his own sovereign time, he brings people to preach the gospel to them. And he will effectually call those people and grant them repentance and will grant them faith in Christ. And a Christian, a true Christian, always is only relying on Christ's work to get them into heaven and to save them and to uh, bring them into eternal glory after they die. Okay, and so we do good works though, don't we? Does that mean we can just go out and, and live a sinful, debauched life and it doesn't matter? Okay, what, what is the biblical answer to that? Because that, that objection seems to come up in every generation. Like after we're, after we're dead and buried in a cemetery somewhere, there'll be people standing here talking about the same thing. What, what's our answer to that? If people say, you're just saying we have a license to sin all we want. What's, what's our answer to that? Paul said if you're dead... If you died to sin, that's right. Why live like that anymore? That's right. He basically says it's impossible. No one who is a true believer can just keep on sinning, because once the Spirit of God takes up residence in them and has changed their heart, they'll have new desires. Right? They'll have a, a new desire to do what is right, and they'll feel convicted and feel guilty about doing what's wrong. And I, you know, by by the mercy of God, I do remember life before I was converted, and I didn't feel guilty. Uh, for things I felt guilty about after I was saved, or, or not as guilty. When you become a Christian, you start to feel like serious guilt, right? 
And that's, that's really what keeps us clinging to the gospel and clinging to the Lord Jesus. Okay, so let's look at verse 19. Paul here uh, is spelling out um, some objections that he heard to his message and also questions that people asked him. What purpose then, verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Now he was asked quite often, why did God give us the law if it can't make us right with him? If our obedience to it can't save us, then why did God give it to us at all? Is it really hot in here already? You guys aren't yes. hot? You are hot? Okay. I'm sweating. Okay. Wow. Yeah, the heat is like just a blast furnace down here. Okay. So the law, why did God give, us, give Israel the law? Why did God give mankind the law? What's the primary reason he gave it to us? Yeah, so we would see our sinfulness. Okay. Now, the first, the, the first covenant that God made with man was a covenant of obedience. It was a covenant of works. And that, uh, that commandment, uh, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. That was intended, that, that was supposed to bring life, but because Adam disobeyed it, it became the source of death. And all of God's laws are a source of death, to anyone that tries to get into heaven by obeying them. Okay, but what did most Jewish people at the time that Jesus came on the scene, what did they think about the law of God in terms of their own relationship with it? How'd they, how'd they see it? They thought they it? Yeah, they thought they could actually obey God's commandments. They, they really did. But what does the Sermon on the Mount kind of show us about the law? Refraining from doing isn't refraining from sin because it all starts in the heart. That's right. That's right. The law required, it always required much more than just outward conformity. It requires conformity in our mind, in our imagination, our motives, and everything else. It requires perfect conformity in thought, word, and deed. And that's why Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not uh, murder. But I say to you, if anyone hates his brother in his heart without cause is guilty of that. Okay, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. I say if you look with lust at someone, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So there were a lot of people listening to him who probably had never committed the act of adultery, but in their minds they had many times. Okay, so the law always required much more than people thought. But its main purpose, as Paul's going to spell out here, was to show us our sinfulness so that we would uh, believe in Jesus. Yes, sir. The Pharisees? Oh, that, that it required heart conformity? Yeah. yeah, I mean, they knew what the greatest law was, right? Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. But, yeah, the unregenerate man is always going to lower the standard to where he can attain it. But once the Spirit of God starts convicting, you start seeing those commandments, they, they lay us all low. Yeah, Jesus answered, yeah, what is, Master, what is the great commandment? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, that was, that was a good question, and he did answer him rightly. But the law, one, as soon as Adam falls into sin and we're all sinful, the law is not good news for us anymore. Okay, the law is only bad news. The law slays us and leaves us um, 
hellbound. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and very often, sadly, as much as people rain fire on the Pharisees, there's a lot of evangelical churches that have their own sets of unbiblical traditions and will ignore the, the real hard stuff like husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. I mean, I can stay away from pool halls and can never drink a beer and not chew tobacco or things like that. Those are easy, but those, those aren't commandments that God has given to us. Okay? So when, when man invents laws, he always makes laws that are easy to keep. God's laws are a lot harder. So, But Paul was asked that question a lot. Well, what, what's the point of the law if it can't save us? And then look at verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster. Does anyone's translation say schoolmaster there? Mine says guardian. Gu- guardian, yeah. Tutor, I'm sorry, yours says schoolmaster. That term, remember the, the Greek term pedagogos? Was, how was he portrayed in ancient Greek art? A guy that fought, you hired a, a guy to follow your kids around with a big stick. And, he would, and when they got out of line, he would smack them. And that's the way, that's what the law of God does to us. The law is constantly like that stick hitting us, showing us you fall short, you need Christ. You fall short, you need Christ. Okay, and that's why he says that. See verse 24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So since we can't, get into heaven by keeping the law or doing good works. Our only, the only thing we have is to put our trust that Christ has done it for us, that Jesus entered into those commandments and kept them all in our behalf. And he's going to get real clear here in, in um, Galatians chapter 4. Um, let's go ahead and, and push on verse 25. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Okay, so once a person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, the law no, no longer has that crushing, condemning power over us because we're set free from that. We're, we're justified before God. We're declared righteous once for all. And so the law doesn't do that to us. Now, the law will always show us how we fall short. And so it's always showing us we need to put our faith in Christ alone. But it's not that, that tutor crushing us and killing us. Like, always think of Martin Luther. Martin Luther's life is such a good illustration of this. The law before he came to Christ was just this terrible burden, and he was so scared of dying and going to hell. But once he saw the gospel, the law became, okay, here's how I can show my gratitude to God. Here's how I want to live my life now, okay? All right, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, notice that's a significant statement because he's pointing out it's not by law keeping or keeping the dietary laws or by circumcision or by keeping the Ten Commandments. It's through faith that you're sons of God. It's only through belief in the gospel that you're sons of God through faith in, in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay? Now, 
what he Paul does this in every one of his letters. What was a, one of the big problems they constantly had in these these newfound Christian churches that had two groups in them that tended not to like each other? Jews and Gentiles. Okay, especially the Jews, especially really did not like Gentiles. They thought they were dogs and they were unclean. And you know, in preaching through Luke's gospel, some of the reading that that I did, Jews would take long detours to avoid going through Samaria. Because they thought even the air in that region would infect them with Gentile grossness or something. I mean, they did. They didn't want to breathe the air. They didn't want to touch anything that they, that they had touched. I mean, this is real animosity. And yet, then you have the gospel that comes on the scene, and it's convicting people of their sins. And you have huge numbers of Gentiles, and you have Jews. They're all coming together in these little churches, and they've, they've got to coexist peacefully. And Paul wrote this constantly to them. That there is one body, there's one church, because the temptation was for them to have, okay, we'll have a Jewish church and then a Gentile church over there. And so much of the New Testament is you can't do that because we're, we're one body in, in the Lord. Now, just, I just always, I always like to share when, um, when I've seen passages misused. Um, I wrote a paper when I was in seminary on <coughs> um, a church growth movement, read a number of books by Bill Hybels. You guys know who Bill Hybels is? <laughs> the Willow, Willow Creek <laughs> guy. I read four books by the guy, and it just came, it came across, uh, this is the first time I'd ever seen this passage used this way. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. We can have women elders. <laughs> women can be pastors, because there's neither male nor female in Christ. How, how would you respond to that? It's easy to respond to, but how, how would you answer that? That is what this passage is about. It's not about qualifications for elders. It's not. Exegesis. It has, has nothing to do with the, the topic. Where, where would you go in Scripture to find out about who can serve as an elder or a deacon? First Timothy 3. Mm-hmm. To, to the passages that address it, right? Okay. But he, he had a lengthy section in there where he was arguing for this. And I thought, wow. Equality doesn't mean same role. Right. I mean, Right. Right. There's a number of ways men and women are the same, and there's a number of ways they're different. They're the same in that they both are made in God's image. They're the same in that they both are fallen and need Christ. They're the same in that they're both equally members of the church, but they have different functions and different roles in the church, and those are spelled out in Scripture for us. But, yeah, I, I was just surprised that that was actually in print. Um, on the pages in front of me, I was really surprised that that verse would be used. I thought, wow, that, no, no sensitivity to context whatsoever. That's just proof texting and trying to find something to prop up something that you want to do. Yeah. So. I, th- I think egalitarianism uh, commonly points to verses like that and what the one in Colossians. Mm-hmm. Same thing, yeah. male or female. Mm-hmm. And all, of course, all, all roads lead to Deborah. <laughs> all, all roads lead to Deborah, and then and all, all roads also lead to Phoebe in Romans 16. Because <laughs> Phoebe, yeah, all roads lead to Deborah, all those roads lead to Phoebe. So, isn't that why it was so strange that Jesus actually went through Samaria to meet the woman at the well? Yes. In the first place. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know if it's true, but from what I understand, when, when she said to Jesus that even the dogs eat the crumbs on the floor, when Jesus, when Jesus commented back, the term dog he used is more of like a family, like part of the family and not like a 
disgusting outcasted dog yeah. as you usually did. Is right. that true? Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know. That's actually a different narrative. That's actually the, um, the Syrophoenician oh, woman oh, yeah, oh, <coughs> that, oh. that says that. To him, I'm um, sorry. I was getting yeah, he was obviously being the sovereign god of the universe. He knew how she was going to respond and be persistent, and right. um, I think that's really what's being illustrated there. Uh, yeah. Did yeah. say how is it that you, being a Jew, ask ask a drink from me? Yeah. Yeah. And notice it's interesting in John four. There, all of a sudden, Jesus is all by himself. Yeah. <laughs> All by himself in sight near Sychar there, and it's like, where are his other disciples? They probably were like, we're not going in there with, with you. Um, but it's an amazing thing. That's a, a really a, a precursor to kind of the, the evangelization of the world. Because what does that woman do? She goes back to her she village. Water back. Yeah, and she tells everybody, "Come see a man who knew everything I ever, told me, everything I ever did." And and it says many believed. You know, her, that whole village. You know, it's kind of. God always had a heart for the Gentile nations. In fact, Israel was supposed to be a light to them. And they were supposed to have that missional um, outreach you know, to the nations around them, but they, they didn't. They, they just kind of walled themselves off and didn't want anything to do with... Um, it's such an odd irony, because in some ways they wanted to follow the world around them, but in other ways they thought they were better than, than everyone around them. But... The, were there always some Gentiles within Israel? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. From day one, there were there were non-Israelites that were part of the, the church in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, and there's provisions there, too. There's a provision in the Passover. In Exodus 12, if, if a sojourner, if a foreigner wants to be part of the community, let all his males be circumcised, and then, then he can come in and take the Passover. And it's just like in the church today. It's just like baptism, and you know the household's baptized, and everybody's brought in together. So... Okay, uh, let's uh, push on to uh, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So always remember in the Abrahamic covenant there in Genesis 15, remember what happens in Genesis 15 when Abraham is, Abraham starts out that chapter complaining. Remember what he's complaining about? I still don't have a son. Like you promised I was going to have a son and, and year after year after year is going by and he still doesn't have one. And he says, Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. Remember what God tells him to do next? Go outside and look at the yeah. stars. Count the stars if you can. So shall your descendants be. And that's, that's the promise there of all of the elect through all the ages of time, everyone that will ever believe in Jesus Christ. We are the children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul, you see Paul saying that there in verse 29. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay. Now, there's one thing, like, we probably won't get to it tonight, um, towards the end of chapter 4. Read Galatians 4 um, before we get back together next time. Paul says things there that are about as offensive as they could possibly be to a Jewish person. Because he actually tells them that Gentiles who believe in Jesus, they are the spiritual descendants of Isaac. And Jews that reject Christ are the spiritual descendants of who? The other one, Ishmael, the 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 son of the of the Egyptian bond servant. Okay, so that that would have been just so offensive to them to to be told that. But that's what he says here. But it's true. Who is the true Israel today? Who's the true? Who are the true Jews? Me, and I'm. I don't even know what I am. I'm 
English, Scotch, Irish, something. I, we don't, I, to my knowledge, there's no Jewish blood, but I am a Jew by faith in Jesus Christ. I am a descendant of Abraham by faith. To say that? They cannot grasp that there's not two ways of salvation. Yeah, yeah, the real distinction, yeah. And don't, and don't seem to understand that we're supposed to evangelize Jewish people. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that ironic? The dispensationalists will tell us, you guys are anti-Semitic. And we're like, no, we're not. We, we believe that they need, to, they need to hear the gospel. They need Christ. Uh, they don't have a separate plan of salvation. They don't have anything uh, outside of Christ. I think it's crazy so. that Christians try to help donate money to get the temple rebuilt and sacrificial. Yes, yes. It's really sad. Don't get me started on that, please. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just, just, just remember, just remember this: redemptive history is not going to take a giant U-turn and go back to Old Testament types and shadows. That's the part that, like, like as soon as I was introduced to like biblical reformed eschatology, that's what they always bring up. They're like, why would redemptive history go backwards to types and shadows? We have a whole book of the New Testament devoted to making sure no one will ever do that. What book is that? Hebrews. Hebrews. Do not go back to the old way. I mean, Paul, or, yeah, Paul wrote Hebrews. Or whoever whoever wrote it, whoever whoever wrote it, don't go back to Old Testament types and shadows. You don't need the priesthood. We don't need the sacrificial system. We don't need any of that anymore because everything that those things pointed to is here in Christ. So, yeah, it's a a strange thing. It's almost like they, they think the Old Testament age of types and shadows really was the golden age. That was like the, the best that, that it ever was. And that's just not true at all. Because um, we, we live where they, what they were looking forward to. Remember, Jesus himself said, Abraham was looking forward to my day. He was looking forward to my coming. And so he would have loved to see what, what we see. So. They, they are like what we talked about earlier. They think that the old, because I did until I was informed, they think that the Jews were saved by works. Right. As if the gospel wasn't in the Old Testament. Yeah. You know, but it was there. I mean, people were saved in the Old Testament by faith, that's not right. by works. Yeah. So was Abraham. That's right. right. Yeah, and that's remember, what's Paul's favorite Old Testament Bible verse? He cites it over and over again in Galatians, Genesis 15, 6, which says, And Abraham believed in Yahweh, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's right there. And that's 430 years before Moses ever gave the law on Mount Sinai. And Paul's whole point is that that's should, that should have been where the Jewish people and all of them looked to that promise, not to the giving of the law. They really misunderstood the whole purpose of the law. The law was to show them their need for the Lord Jesus and his righteousness. So, okay, let's look at chapter 4 now and see how far we can get here. <clears throat> now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, really, really what he's saying here is that before we heard the gospel and believed it, we were like a, a slave in a house that was, that was kept under guard by the law. But once the faith in Jesus Christ was preached to us and we repented of our sins and believed it, then we're, we're released from that. Now we become like sons. Okay. Now the scripture does teach we're bond servants of God. We're slaves of Jesus Christ, but we're also the adopted children of God. So in that sense, we're not slaves that live in fear of a, of a tyrant master. We're sons and daughters of God. Once the law has done its work and we believe in Jesus, 
we're, we're no longer under that, um, that guardian, that steward, until the time appointed by the Father. You see verse 3 again? Even so we, when we were children, in other words, before we understood the gospel, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Most will take that to be a reference to lo- looking to the law as, as your source of life. You're in bondage to it because you can never keep it. And then verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5 is so critical to understand. You see it? But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his, his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Okay, just stop there for a moment. Have you guys noticed that in my, my preaching and teaching, even in my pastoral prayers, that um, I will frequently make reference to Jesus entering into the broken covenant? Because that, that's the only way that we can be saved. That covenant of works, once Adam's broken it, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he enters into that. He's born under the law. What does that mean? Right there in that verse. Sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law. Meaning what? He's subject to the law. That's, He's expected to obey all of it. That's right. In exactly the same way Adam was. Adam was, was subject to the law. Okay, when he was created, God enters into a covenant of works with Adam. Adam breaks it, and he represents the entire human race. That's why everybody here is going to die. Jesus is born of a woman, born under the law. He enters into that broken covenant and keeps it all in our behalf. And that's one of the main reasons that justification before God is by faith alone. Because can, can, am I a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker when it comes to the covenant of works? A breaker. So if God requires perfect obedience and perfect righteousness to get into heaven, my works can't contribute anything to that. Even as a redeemed Christian, no matter how sanctified I ever get, I can't contribute to what Jesus accomplished in being born of a woman and born under the law. Does that make sense? I read a, there was a wonderful book. Um, in fact, I gave it to the seminary guys and, and said, you guys have got to read this. And we've actually read chapters of it together. It's called Counsel to Gospel Ministers by a, a theologian named John Brown of Haddington. Y'all ever heard of him? Oh, yeah. He, yeah, he's one of these unknown guys that needs to be more known. Reformation Heritage has been publishing some of his stuff. And he has a whole list of things. He's like letters to young ministers. If you don't get this right and this right and this right and this right, you're not preaching the gospel, period. And that's one of the things he really hammers. You've got to preach that Jesus enters into that broken covenant and keeps it all for people. And they can only look to him and his obedience to it to get them into heaven. And he just hammers that point and i just think that that's that's just right on the money you see that verse four again when the fullness of the time had come god sent forth his son born of a woman so he's born of the virgin mary born under the law he's under the covenant of works just like we are to redeem those who were under the law that we would receive the adoption as sons so he enters into the broken law the broken covenant to redeem us from its curse Remember, look back at Galatians 3.13. You see it? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that's, always remember in God's mind and God's heart towards human beings, every human being in the world is either blessed or cursed. Everyone is. Blessing or cursing. It was a R.C. Sproul lecture I listened to years ago, and it's called Blessed or Cursed. It's one or the other. If you're a covenant breaker, if you don't keep God's commandments, you're under the curse of the law. Unless you're in Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you are no longer under the curse. Why? Christ redeemed us from it. By going to the cross, he was cursed in our behalf. He was cursed for us. 
I mean, isn't that incredible to you to just kind of think about that? He was held legally responsible by God the Father for every sin I've ever committed in my life. Here, there he is, sinlessly perfect, and he is charged with all of it. My coveting, law-breaking, lust, pride, anger, envy, cursing, swearing, blasphemy, all of it is laid to his account. He suffers and dies for it all. It's just an amazing thing. That's the greatest thing anyone can ever know right there. He was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem us from the law's curse. Because we all break it, don't we? You guys ever seen those videos where Ray Comfort goes out and asks people, have you ever stolen anything? Yes. You ever told a lie? Yes. Ever had a lustful thought? Yes. Okay, so you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer. Um, How do you think it's going to go on the day of judgment? Because initially people will say, I'm a pretty good person, I'm this or that. But then I'll ask him after listening to some of the commandments. So how do you think it's going to go now uh, if God judges you by the Ten Commandments, heaven or hell? And most people will say, probably hell. Okay, and that's why people need the gospel. They need the gospel. We need Christ to enter into that law and keep it for us. Okay, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Okay, so for those that truly do believe the gospel, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And as soon as someone's saved, what do they typically immediately start doing? I'm sorry? They'll, they'll start evangelizing. What else? Usually a, a brand newborn Christian will, will immediately pray, right? I always think of the Apostle Paul when he was blinded on the road to Damascus, and Jesus tells Ananias, I want you to go see this guy. What does Ananias say to Jesus? He's praying. Yeah, he says, behold, behold, he is praying, Jesus says to Ananias. But does Ananias want to go see him? Yeah. He's like, I don't want to go see him. We know all about this guy. He's the guy that killed Stephen. He, he hates the Christians. But I love that line, behold, he is praying. I'm like, I bet he was. I'm sure he was talking to God fervently. Well, he couldn't see, so it wasn't anything else. <laughs> yeah. If you're supernaturally blinded and can't yeah. go anywhere, yeah, you might as well talk to God. And yeah. Plus, he'd had a conversation with Jesus on the road. I mean, one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard was Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching on the Acts chapter 9 and when Saul was converted. And Lloyd-Jones just had such a good way. He would build and build and build to this climactic moment in his sermons. People always tell me, your whole sermon is the climactic moment. Um, You just are yelling the whole time. But Lloyd-Jones would would get to this point and he says, now think about when Saul of Tarsus is, is blinded and he's down on the ground and he says, who are you? And this answer comes back. I am Jesus. And uh, Lloyd-Jones described it as a a self-shattering moment for him. It's like everything he thought he knew about the Old Testament, everything he thought was right, pretty much was wrong. And he realized he was an enemy of the God that he thought he loved and served. And the way Lloyd-Jones just pounded that point, I remember... I was taking a walk somewhere, just kind of like stunned, like, man, that was, that, what a moment in world history. You know, who are you, Lord? You know, he's like, you can't see, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you. What went through his mind first? 
What? When he was persecuting the church, and then here's Jesus telling him who he is. Yeah. I'd like to know his first thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why are you persecuting me? Why, why does he say? He says that to him. Okay. All right, let's look at verse 8 and following. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how was it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Okay, and so the thing is, they, they were adding all this stuff to the gospel as a means of being right with God. Okay, now Paul says that, you know, in other places, like in 1 Corinthians and other places, if, if some of your Jewish brethren, if they still have issues about food, don't make a big deal out of it. But if people are saying you get into heaven by doing this, that's a whole different issue. Okay, and that's what these were, were doing. They had added this stuff to faith in Christ as a means of being right with God. And that's why he says, I'm afraid I labored for you in vain. Why is he saying that? That's pretty serious, isn't he? Isn't he it? The gospel and they didn't get it. Yeah, he's basically telling them, you guys must not have really understood what I was trying to tell you the first time if you're willing to entertain this stuff. Okay, and then verse 13, or excuse me, verse 12. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You've not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Okay, now, we don't know exactly what's being talked about here, but there are some commentators who think that um, Paul's thorn in the flesh that he had, um, it could have been related to not being able to see well. And we know from the end of this book that he wrote this in very large letters, Okay, he may have gotten injured. Remember, what, what are some of the things that happened to Paul? He was blinded on the road. He was blinded there, yeah. I don't know if Jesus did LASIK surgery or anything, but he probably couldn't see very well. What? I'm sorry? He, he had been stoned? I'm sure he got hit in the head. I mean, they knocked him unconscious and drug him out of the city. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was delivered from wild beasts. Probably, he was shipwrecked. He was bitten by a snake, yeah. He was and survived it. <clears throat> that's a, that's a, a um, somewhat humorous story because the, the locals, he reaches in for the fire and a, a venomous snake grabs hold of his hand and he doesn't immediately die, so what do they think? He must be He's a god. They yeah. think, well, he couldn't get away with murder. God yeah. Said the snake and then he didn't swell up, so, oh, he must be a god. Yeah, yeah. Justice <laughs> has come to get him, right? It just shows we shouldn't be superstitious like that. Don't try to interpret everything that ever happens as some kind of omen or something like that. Like, if you, you know, get hurt or you, you whatever, it doesn't mean, it's not like you have to, like, interpret what that means or something like that. Okay. Um, where, oh, turn the page okay yes so this eye issue you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me he must not have been able to see very well but he's remembering you guys were really good to me and we had a great relationship and i preached to you and it sounded like you guys believed it and he's getting pushback from them and they're probably upset at him look at verse 16 here's a verse for the ages have i therefore become your enemy because i tell you the truth 
Okay, that's just something that you have to deal with sometimes. If, as a Christian, uh, people think the truth is not loving, but there's nothing more loving than the truth to tell people. You have to tell them the truth. And, that, and there are going to be times they don't like that. Okay? And there's nothing more loving than the truth. Now, I would encourage you, it, you know, when you witness to people, you don't you know, introduce yourself, hi, you're going to hell. Okay? That's not how, how you do it. You want to be winsome and kind and things like that. Um, but eventually you do have to get to <clears throat> the bad news so people can understand what the good news is. Okay, and that means you've got to help them see their sin. You've got to walk them through the law and all of that. <clears throat> okay, verse 17. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. Okay, these are like zealous false teachers trying to lure people to follow them. <clears throat> verse 18. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. <clears throat> okay, so he's saying, I'm really wondering, the fact that you're willing to tolerate this makes me doubt whether you guys are saved or not. Okay, and that's a, that's a rough thing to tell a whole group of churches, but um, why do you think he told them that? He loved them. It, that, that's the answer. Now, what if he had written him a letter? We've heard about your great faith. You guys are doing so great. We've heard about how generous you are. You guys are really nice. They probably would have liked him a lot more, wouldn't they? They would have. But he understood, you know, as, a, as an under-shepherd of Christ, he needed to tell them what was true. And he had serious doubts about whether they knew Christ or not. He had very serious doubts about it. And he does say exactly those sort of things to the church of Thessalonica. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because it was... Yeah, yeah. It was. It must have been. It must have been a lot harder to be a hypocrite in Thessalonica, where like everybody there is is being killed and stuff. You know, I'm, I actually those were the first two books I ever preached through after I was ordained was First and Second Thessalonians, and it was. I learned a lot. Like the theology in those two books is very rudimentary. It's very low level, basic. And you read First Thessalonians four, and you think, why is he telling them um, that those who have died? Um, will will precede the or uh, will, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we'll meet the Lord in the air. And you read it and read the commentaries. They really thought that their friends that had been killed by persecution had missed out on the second coming. And you think that, yeah, he was only there for somewhere between three and six Sabbath days. That's all the time he had to teach them the Christian faith. And so they thought, if we're not alive when Jesus comes back, then oh, these people that died they missed out on it. And he's like, no, 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 they, they're going to come back to life. They're going to they're rise and meet the Lord in the air. And you who are, who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air when he returns. Um, but yeah, they needed that encouragement. They, and he, that's why he tells them, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Nobody's missed out on anything. Um, okay, let's look at, uh, we'll just do a little bit here and then we'll, we'll pick up at verse 21. But I, I just want to at least read this to you. <clears throat> Tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. 
For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Okay, I'll just, I'll just read the rest of it. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So he's saying, if you trust in your good works or anything you do to get you into heaven, you're not a child of the promise. You're a child of the bondwoman. You're a spiritual descendant of Hagar. You're not a spiritual descendant of Isaac. Now think about the way in which the conception of each one of those boys worked. One was ordinary generation, just the normal, normal bodily function. The other one, Isaac, how was he conceived? I'm sorry? Miraculous. What? Miraculously. Miraculously, yes. It's the same with us. It's the same with us. Every person who trusts in their good works, who trusts that what they've done in some way is going to get them into heaven, they are the spiritual children of Ishmael. And anyone, Jew or Gentile, that believes in Jesus and trusts only in Jesus, that's a demonstration that they've been miraculously born again. Okay, isn't that glorious? I just love that. Okay, the one, I mean, look at verse 23, and, we'll, and then we'll stop. <clears throat> or verse 22. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. In other words, by works, by normal works. And he of the free woman through promise. Okay, and why was it miraculous? How do we know that that was a miraculous thing? She was 90 years old. She was 90 years old. 90 years old and had a baby. I'm sorry? I said that's pretty miraculous. Yeah, it is. 90, she was 90 years old and had a, a baby. Okay. All right. So that's, that's really the illustration. That's, there's those that are conceived by a miracle and then those that are conceived by the flesh. And one is the work salvation and one is trusting in Christ alone. Okay. Any comments or thoughts? It's good stuff, isn't it? There's two covenants. It shows you that even after people have heard the gospel, though, they tend to default to what they've always thought. Yeah. It yeah. takes a while to work all the garbage out. Yeah. Trusting in the finished work of Christ, Theodore Beza, John Calvin's successor in Geneva, said, had one of the greatest quotations I've ever read by a theologian. He said, the law is in us by nature. The gospel is not at all in us by nature, but is revealed from heaven. And it has to be pounded into the souls of men. And so my back porch, until before um, Paul fixed it, <clears throat> all the nails would constantly be coming up. You have to go out there with a hammer so you don't, you know, get holes in your shoes or whatever. Go out there and you have to hammer all the nails in. I think that's kind of the way we are with understanding the grace of God and trusting in the grace of God. It's like the nail that just won't stay down. And that's why Christians need to hear the gospel a lot. And we need to hear that the work of Christ is perfect a lot. And we need to be, be directed to trust in the perfection of the finished work of Christ a lot. Because as Robert Raymond said in his systematic theology, we all have Pelagian hearts. Even as Christians, we still have these evil hearts that, that gravitate towards falsehood in that way. That's why so. Martin Luther says, I preach the gospel to my people every week because they forget it every week. Because they forget it every week. Yeah, he's right. He's right. Yep. 
Uh, a good Lutheran theologian uh, wrote a chapter in a, a book on the Reformation and Lordship Salvation. <clears throat> and the chapter is called "Christ Died for the Sins of Christians Too." <laughs> it's like because people, yeah, well, like, well, I, I blew it too bad this time. I guess God's done with me. It's like, no, that's not how it works at all. But, okay, any other thoughts or comments? Okay, I got a 48 or 42 pack of snacks this week. We'll see if uh, if that actually will last. All right, let's let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for this time to be together. Thank you for each person who's here. We're so thankful to you for your word. Uh, what a blessing it is to have the whole Bible in our possession and to be able to read it together. And we thank you for the work of your spirit in our hearts to teach us from it and to help us understand it. And we thank you for the finished work of Christ that... By faith in him, we are heirs of eternal life, and by trusting in his finished work and his righteousness, we have our sins forgiven and are accepted before you wholly and completely. And uh, we pray that you would help us and our kids and our grandkids to love you, to know that truth, to walk in your ways, and we pray that we would all uh, reunite in heaven um, when this life is over. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.